a freshman entering Bible college was asked what part of the Bible he liked best. Well, I like the New Testament best, he answered. Well, what book do you like in the New Testament, the interviewer wanted to know. Oh, by far, I like the book of parables best, the freshman replied. Well, would you kindly relate one of those parables to me, the interviewer asked, and the freshman complied, saying, Once upon a time, a man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves, and the thorns grew up and choked that man. And he went on and met the queen of Sheba, and she gave that man a thousand talents of gold and silver and a hundred changes of raiment. And he got in his chariot and drove furiously, and as he was driving under a big tree, his hair got caught in a limb and left him hanging here. And he hung there for many days and many nights, and the ravens brought him food to eat and water to drink. And one night while he was hanging there asleep, his wife Delilah came along and cut off his hair, and he dropped and fell on stony ground. And it began to rain, and it rained forty days and forty nights. And he hid himself in a cave. And he went out and met a man and said, Come and take supper with me in my cave. But the man said, I cannot, for I have married a wife. And the cave dweller went out into the highways and byways and compelled people to come in. And he went on and came to Jericho, and he saw Queen Jezebel sitting high up in a window. And when she saw him, she laughed. And he said, Throw her down. He said, throw her down again, again. And they threw her down 70 times 7. And other fragments they picked up, 12 baskets. And now what I want to know is, whose wife will she be on the day of resurrection? Parables. This morning we come to chapter 4 in our study of the gospel in Mark. And, and we come to the first of the parables that Mark records. And so... Uh, what we want to do today is, is consider, first of all, what is a parable, and then how should we go interpreting a parable? Because if you read the Gospels, you're going to run across these parables that Jesus gives. And you're maybe scratching your head thinking, well, how, how, what am I to make sense of this? What is this supposed to mean? After we do that, then we'll look at one of the most well-known parables, the parable of the sower, here in chapter 4. The word parable... Is a compound word in the Greek, the language of the New Testament. It comes from the prefix para, which means beside or alongside, and the verb balo, which means to throw. And so when you put it together, the idea is of a story thrown down alongside the truth to illustrate the truth. Now, Jesus often spoke in parables. In fact, he told his disciples that there were two purposes in these parables one is to reveal truth to his followers and second was to conceal truth to those who were outside now let's go to uh, to mark's gospel chapter four and and let's look at the beginning of this parable and how we are to understand parables mark chapter four i'm going to start reading at verse nine and Jesus said, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And when he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parables. And he said to them, To you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God, but for those outside, everything is in parables, so that they may indeed see but not perceive, 
and may indeed hear but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. Jesus says to his followers, these truths, uh, the, the mysteries of the kingdom are for your understanding. Now let me remind you that by mysteries, Jesus is not talking about something mystical or mysterious. That's not the meaning of it. These are secrets that are truths hidden from understanding and would remain hidden unless God revealed them. So when you see that word mystery appearing in the New Testament, that's what it's referring to. But that's the nature of spiritual truth, isn't it? Uh, spiritual truth is not understood by all. The Apostle Paul deals with this in his letter of 1 Corinthians. Just flip over a few books to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Paul's writing to a church that lived in a culture of a lot of hidden wisdom, a lot of mythical, mystical religions. And, and he deals with this issue of truth in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 7. Paul says, But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. Now drop down to verse 10. These things, Paul says, God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, listen, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. And then Paul says the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord as so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Now, Jesus goes on to say in Mark 4 that there are others who do not have this understanding. They won't see it. And he describes those as being outside. He illustrates their condition by quoting from the Old Testament prophet Isaiah. And it sounds a little harsh, doesn't it? It seems like Jesus is saying, listen, I'm going to talk in parables so that they can't understand or they won't understand lest they repent and believe and be forgiven. But the context of the Isaiah prophecy here and passage is important because God tells Isaiah uh, to preach even though it will only harden the hearts of those who hear. And the prophecy of Isaiah was being fulfilled even while he preached, even as it continued through the day of Jesus. Jesus says he preaches even though this prophecy of hardened minds, hardened hearts, was being fulfilled then. Now, Matthew's gospel shows the truth of this condition, adds more than Mark does. So let's just go back to Matthew, the first book in the New Testament, chapter 13. Let's look at this parallel. Matthew chapter 13, and I'm going to start reading at verse 10. 
Matthew 13, 10. Then the disciples came and said to him, Why do you speak to them in parables? And he answered them, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. For to the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled. This says, you will indeed hear, but never understand. You will indeed see, but never perceive. Look, for this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Who closed their eyes? Who closed their minds? Who closed their hearts? Who closed their wills? Did God do that? No, they did. They did. They were the ones who sealed their fate. I have another great Old Testament example in Pharaoh. Remember Pharaoh? When God's word comes to Pharaoh, and over and over again it says, and Pharaoh hardened his heart. He hardened his heart. He hardened his heart until God said, okay, I'll close the deal, and I'll harden your heart. These are the kinds of people that Jesus is talking about in this passage in Mark. Jesus wanted to heal them of their spiritual sickness. All they wanted was healing from their physical sicknesses and the casting out of spirits. And because of their unbelief, Jesus begins now to speak in parables. Now, there are 35 parables that are identified in Mark's, in, in Mark's gospel, Luke's gospel, Matthew's gospel. Can you think of some of them? Just throw them out there. What are, what are some of the parables that you remember in the, in the gospels? Prodigal son. The lost sheep. The good Samaritan, really familiar one. Any others? The unjust judge, yes. Hmm? Yep, the lost coin. Uh, there's a lot of them. Again, 35. I, I would say that some of, the, some of the most familiar ones, we mentioned a couple of them already, uh, like the good Samaritan, that's very familiar. Uh, the prodigal son, very familiar. Um, the talents is another one, um, the mustard seed. So again, Dr. Roy Zuck, who writes about this, speaks of the many literary features of parables, things like suspense, contrast, characterization, conflict, uh, surprise, hyperbole, reversal, all those things. And you know, when you read the parables, it seems that they all relate in one way or another to the kingdom of God. That's what Jesus came preaching, wasn't it? The kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. And so Jesus often introduces a parable by saying, uh, this is what the kingdom of God is like. And then he goes on and he tells the parable. But here's the problem. It's interpreting the parable. So we read these parables and we think, how, how am I to see these parables? Uh, th there's a tendency among many teachers and commentators, Sunday school teachers, preachers, is to build a whole theological message around the details of a parable. And, you know, so you put together this, this wonderful, powerful, fully illustrated presentation where you focus on every little part of the parable and make it... So but you know what? That's not... Well, how we interpret a parable, that's an allegory. Um, 
Zuck, in his book, Basic Bible Interpretation, gives five guidelines for interpreting parables. So just tuck these away in your mind, would you? Number one is note the story's natural meaning. He, he says a parable is a story that seeks to illustrate a truth by analogy. Two things, then, are being brought together in a parable, a true-to-life incident and the spiritual truth it is illuminating or illustrating. So that's the first thing. I want to try to figure out what's the natural meaning. The second thing is determine the problem, question, or situation that prompted the parable. In other words, ask yourself, what's going on in the context of the parable? Jesus doesn't just start talking with no connection to what's happening. There's usually a situation uh, that, that triggers the parable and provides the context and setup of the parable. The third thing we want to do in interpreting a parable is ascertain the main truth being illustrated by the parable. Now, it's important as we interpret a parable that we seek to understand what it meant to those first hearers. Remember, the first century Jews lived in a different culture than what we live in today. So part of, of looking for the main truth is, what is the truth that they would hear? What would they key in on? In general, a parable is teaching a simple truth. And what the details do is they provide the flesh around this one main point. It doesn't mean that the details are unessential. Often it's the details that provide the flesh around the main point. So it makes sense to us as we're looking at it. Uh, but often they're not intended to have either an implicit or explicit uh, correlation to what is being taught. I'll give you an example. Let's go to Luke. Just turn, turn ahead to Luke chapter 15. Look at one of the parables that Luke records. Luke 15, I'll start reading in verse 1. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he's lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that's lost until he finds it? And when he's found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. Well, okay, let's look at it. The shepherd, obviously, is Jesus. Uh, the one sheep represents a lost sinner. And the 99 represent those who thought that they were righteous and didn't need to repent. But all the other elements that we just read in this story, the open country, the shepherd's shoulders, his home, his friends and family, uh, there's not some spiritual significance in there that we're supposed to find and mine out for us to apply. They're simply parts that are needed to make the story understandable to the hearers. It's a point of contact with the familiarity of the hearers. Because here's the danger. The danger for hunting, uh, for meaning in each and every detail is that you turn the parable into an allegory where every point has its correspondence to something else. I'm going to give you a good example. Remember the, the parable of the Good Samaritan. A man, a Jew, 
uh, is beaten and robbed and left for dead along the road. A priest walks by, a Jewish priest, and sees him and just continues along the way. The next one coming along is a Levite. Uh, he does the same. But a Samaritan comes along. The people, the Samaritans who hated the Jews and vice versa, but he saw the Jew and he had pity on him. And he bound up his wounds and put him on his donkey and took him to an inn and cared for him. The next day when he goes off to do his business, he gives money to the innkeeper for the care of the one who had been beaten. Okay, that's the story of the Good Samaritan. The fourth century theologian Augustine, who by the way is one of the greatest thinkers in the history of the church, but he allegorized the parable of the Good Samaritan. And so here is his take on that parable. The man who fell into the hands of robbers is Adam. Jerusalem is heaven, and Jericho signifies man's mortality. The robbers are the devil and his angels, who stripped man of his immortality. In beating him, they persuaded him to sin. And in leaving him half dead, the devil and his angels have left man in a condition in which he has some knowledge of God, but is yet oppressed by sin. The priest represents the law, and the Levite represents the prophets. The Good Samaritan is Christ, who in bandaging the man's wounds seeks to restrain sin. Oil is hope, and wine is a fervent spirit. The man's donkey is Jesus' incarnation, and the man being placed on a donkey pictures his belief in the incarnation of Christ. The inn is the church. The next day pictures the resurrection. The two coins represent either the two precepts of love or this life and the life to come. The innkeeper is the Apostle Paul. You see how you can go anywhere with a parable if we're not careful here. Um, not everything in a parable has some hidden or obvious meaning. So be careful you don't get sidetracked with the details. In fact, sometimes Jesus tells us here is exactly what the point of the parable is. For example, from Luke 18, and he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. So when you read that parable, you're not totally clueless as to what Jesus is trying to say. He tells us. Well, let's go on. Number four, validate the main truth with direct teaching of Scripture. In other words, do the scriptures authenticate and validate your interpretation? The flip side is, are there things in the Bible which would contradict your interpretation of that parable? Remember, God's word never contradicts itself. Here's the last thing. Note the actual or intended response of the hearers. Sometimes that gives you the clue as to what is the essence, the main point of the parable. Now, what I think these guidelines do is to put some boundaries around the approach when we come to a parable. There are certainly principles that we can glean out that we can see supported by other scriptures in there, uh, but you just want to be careful that you don't run wild here with what you're reading and assign meaning to every little thing. So we're going to take a look at the parable of the sower, which is in Mark 4. But before we do, let me just make an observation. This is about the parable of the sower. The sower sowed indiscriminately. He made no judgments or drew no distinctions over the soil. He simply threw the seed out there. 
His responsibility and accountability was not on the productivity of the soils, but on his faithfulness to do what the sower does, and that's to sow. I can never read that parable without the memory of, 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 out of my boyhood coming because when, you, when spring came, and I knew it was always spring because the first thing we did is we seeded oats. And so my dad would get the wagon out, hooked up to the tractor, and, and attach the cedar on the back of the wagon. And then the tractor and the wagon went through the fields just throwing seed everywhere. It wasn't, oh, here's a good place for seed. Let's drive over there. Um, there was just wide sowing. Now, some have called this the parable of the soils. You can appreciate why they do. Uh, I was tempted to call it the parable of the word, and I think I'd have good reason to do that. But yeah, since Jesus in Matthew 13 calls it the parable of the sower, I'll just leave it at that. Let's go to Mark chapter 4, verse 3. Jesus says, listen, Behold, a sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seed fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured it. Other seed fell on rocky ground where it did not have much soil, and immediately it sprang up, since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched, and since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among the thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no grain. And other seeds fell into good soil and produced grain, growing up and increasing and yielding thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. Well, that seems pretty straightforward, don't you think? Not. Look at verse 10 again. When he's alone, those who were around him with the 12 asked about the parables. And he said, to you has been given the secret of the kingdom. Drop down to 13. He said to them, do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all of the parables? And so Jesus now gives his disciples the explanation. The sower sows the word. And these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. And these are the ones sown on rocky ground, the ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. And they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Then when persecution or tribulation arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. And others are the ones sown among thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desire for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. But those that were sown in the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. So more details begin to emerge as Jesus now explains how things correlate. Look at them again. Seed along the road, the birds ate. Satan takes it away. Seed on the rocky ground. There's no depth of soil, and so the sun rises and scorches it and withers it away. There's no root in themselves, so in affliction and persecution they fall away. Then there's seed that goes on the thorns, but the thorns come up and they choke it. There's no fruit. Worries, the deceitfulness of riches, the desire for other things choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. But then the seed falls on good soil and it bears a crop. People who hear the word, who accept it, and who bear fruit in their lives. Just relevant rabbit trail, just for a moment. You notice that 
There's some soil that produces 30-fold, some 60-fold, some 100-fold. Don't ever miss this. It's all good soil. It's all good soil. And so if we look at other people in their lives and we see some producing 30-fold and some 60-fold and some 100-fold, never forget that it's all good soil. Some of it has to do with capacity, uh, but God is yet producing a crop and fruit through them. So, we see the story's natural meaning. You don't have to be a farmer to understand what he's saying. Uh, but what's the situation that prompts the parable? Look what's happening. When you look at Mark chapter 3, in the first six verses, we have the healing of the blind man on the Sabbath. The key is in verse 6. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. And then in Mark 3, verses 20 to 35, Jesus' family is coming to take custody of him. They think he's loony, that he's lost his senses, and they're coming to do an intervention on him. And while this is going on, scribes from Jerusalem accuse him of using the power of Satan to cast out demons. In other words, they're saying that Jesus is demon-possessed. And then you come to Mark 4, verse 1. Again, he began to teach beside the sea, and a very large crowd gathered about him so that he got into a boat and sat in it on the sea, and the whole, world, the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land. And he was teaching them many things in parables. So, what's the point of the parable of the sower? May I suggest a very simple meaning? Many will not believe yet some will. Many will not believe, Jesus is saying, but some will. At the end of his earthly ministry, Jesus tells his disciples plainly that this is the case. Look at this from John 15. If the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. Jesus goes on. Recorded in John 16, he says, I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he's offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you, that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. So let's talk application. God has called us to be sowers of the word. If you belong to him, if you've trusted in him, if you're his child, God calls you to be a sower. We do it in the lives that we live. We do it in the words that we speak. But as you sow the word, you never know the true impact that that's going to have in the lives of others. Because that's God's responsibility, not yours. Uh, that should free us to sow widely, uh, for you never know where the good soil is going to be. You never know where it's going to take root in that. It's God who must cause the seed to germinate. 
The church at Corinth was a church pulled apart by divisions and factions and cliques. And Paul writes a scathing indictment against their attitude and their actions there when he says to them this. For one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos. Are you not being merely human? What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. It's our responsibility to sow the seed. The requirement upon us is just one thing, faithfulness. Faithfulness. But we need to be wise and know this. Some will respond and others will not. That's what Jesus said in the first century. It's as true in the 21st as it was then. And some may respond later to something else. As we water through the things that we do and we say, then others do the same and then in its perfect time comes the fruit. You never know what crop might be and what will result from that. So I want to encourage you to be a sower. Your responsibility ends at that point. Then it's up to God what he does with the seed that we sow. We just pray that God will cause it to grow, to germinate, and to bring forth fruit. Well, let's pray. Lord, thank you so much that you are the one who causes the seed to germinate, to grow, to produce fruit. As hard as we might try, it's only from abiding in you that your fruit is produced in us. But might we just look for opportunities this week that you bring along our path, that we might sow the seed, maybe through a kind word, maybe an opportunity to share a little of our story, maybe even someone that needs to hear the hope that comes from the gospel. But might we sow indiscriminately, and would you then cause that a seed to take root, to produce fruit in its life. May we just understand appropriately our role and understand yours. So we thank you for the seed of the gospel, that your word is powerful, is truthful, and it's a power to save. And so we thank you for that in Christ's name. Amen.